You're listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Before we get to our guest, I want to give a big thank you to those listeners who have generously donated to our appeal for funding to keep Cannabis Health Radio on the air. But we still have a long way to go before we can confidently say that, yes, we can continue doing this. Besides appealing to listeners for support, we've begun searching for companies who may want to advertise with us or be a sponsor. That process is ongoing, but so far... It has not produced the results we were hoping for. However, we're very vigilant and wanted to keep this podcast going, and we'll just keep trying. If you'd like to continue Cannabis Health Radio and hear the remarkable stories of people who have used cannabis for treatment of an acute or debilitating disease, then please go to the donate page on our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. You can be a one-time donor or a monthly patron for as little as $3 a month. If we get enough people contributing, we can continue bringing you these amazing stories about this amazing plant. And once again, thank you for your contribution. Our guest today is going to tell us about her little granddaughter and some of her difficult behavioral issues and how cannabis oil made a dramatic difference in the little girl's life. Joining us from the United States is Chris, and she doesn't want her last name used, so we'll respect that. Chris, good of you to join us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Corey and Ian. It's an honor and a privilege. Chris, take us back to the birth of your granddaughter. Was it a difficult birth? For your daughter? Well, um, she went in on a Friday and was induced. Um, After eight hours, they said it was a failed induction, and they sent her home for a week. And then she went back the next Friday, was induced again. So I I don't know if that had anything to do with Andrew's problems, but it might have. Okay. And at what point was it noticed that something was not quite right with Andy? Well... Andy wasn't speaking by age three, but her father had a major speech problem when he was little. So we just kind of attributed it to that. And as far as behavior, I think that had a lot to do with it as far as her frustration in not being able to communicate. Okay. And the father had a speech problem as a child. So you just thought that uh, Andy was similar to the father and eventually things would work itself out. Yeah, figured it was hereditary, and she was going to take speech therapy, and it would be good. What was her behavior like? Back before she started kindergarten, it really wasn't too bad. Um, She was diagnosed at three when she wasn't speaking, talking very much, uh, with uh, sensory processing disorder. So they already figured she had a little something going on at three. So what is sensory processing disorder? Uh, she doesn't like loud noises. Um, I thought it was very similar to autism, but mm-hmm. we've tested again and again, and they keep saying it's not autism. But she doesn't 
like a lot of foods, a lot of textures bother her, loud sounds. She sounds like me. (laughs) (laughs) And so the doctors diagnosed her with sensory processing disorder. Did they recommend any medication? No, not at that point. Not at that point. Um, But when she started kindergarten, that's when things really, really went downhill. When she started biting and spitting and hitting and it was it was horrible kindergarten was horrible and when she went to kindergarten she still could not communicate she still wasn't speaking very well but she was taking speech therapy classes probably i mean this is just a guess on my part that it was a frustration on her part that she couldn't communicate like the other kids right but you know i mean i'm in my 50s and you know when i acted out when i was you got a spanking and you learned you don't do that again but with with andy you, you could spank her and it it really it just didn't really have the effect that we knew there was something going on okay so she's uh, she's in school what uh, what was the next issue that occurred with her well the very first week she ended up biting another little girl and she didn't want to listen to the teacher she started striking out at the teacher and they they said we we can't have her in with other children. So for months she was one on one with just a teacher and only had communication with the other kids during lunch and recess. Hmm. And she's getting suspended at least once a week, once every two weeks. She would be so bad they were restraining her. She would get so out of control they would suspend her for a day. And Andy just thought, well, I just say I'm sorry, and, you know, I can come back to school. What's the problem? I said, I'm sorry. It, 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 was, just, it, was, it was horrible, and my daughter would call. She'd be in tears. What are we going to do? Did this behavior carry over into home life as well? A little bit. Not as bad, but a little bit. I mean, she's just, she's just a little a different. She's just a little different. So what happened next with respect to Andy and the doctors? Well, um, when my daughter was calling in tears with her getting suspended and then restraining her hard enough to leave bruises, I reached out to a friend from church and she got us in a psychiatric hospital that she worked for very quickly. There was a long waiting list and they ended up keeping her for over a week, and then they diagnosed her with disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which is a like a subcategory of bipolar. But we read that you couldn't even diagnose anybody with bipolar younger than age six. But, you know, you got to trust somebody. So we trusted the doctors, and they started putting her on medicine, and the medicine just really wasn't working, and the side effects scared people the heck out of us so essentially you're saying that at five years old they're looking at you and saying that she's got a version of uh being bipolar exactly wow they put her on lamectal then they tried 10x uh more than an adult dose of seroquel Ooh, that stuff's not good uh they wanted at that point they wanted adderall my daughter said absolutely not they said well let's try resveratrol Absolutely not. And then that's when we started looking for alternatives. And a friend, a really, really 
good friend from high school was going through cancer and she said, Hey, you need to check out this Rick Simpson's webpage. I'm telling you. So I did. Just to back up a little, uh, Andy was on these drugs. What were some of the side effects that were impacting her? You know, honestly, she didn't have any bad side effects even because she wasn't on them for that long okay. because they weren't working. And the doctor said, hey, if they're not working within this time frame, then we need to try something else. But all in all, she was not on the, the medication for very long. And the, the part about them, the medications maybe causing seizures, my daughter said, what if she starts to have seizures and we can't get those stopped? Mm. Chris... Do, do you remember telling me about um, Andy looking at her mom and saying, can't you see these aren't working or it's not working or something along those lines? She did say that to her one time. Yeah. And, you know, and she's six and a half now. Um, for her to say that, for her to look at her mother, to, for her to be getting so upset and looking at her mother and said, my meds aren't working. She, it's like she knows there's something going, going on. Going on, yeah. And she can't control it. So at this point, I assume that your daughter is extremely desperate. And oh. uh, you, you're you looking at uh, alternatives, and you come upon uh, cannabis oil. Tell us that story. Well, the, the friend from high school, you know, who had cancer, told me about Rick Simpson oil webpage. So I went there, I started looking around, and, you know, quite honestly, I have done marijuana for years and years. So I know it's natural. I know it's not going to hurt her. I really didn't know about it curing cancer and helping people in way more many ways than just relaxing. I mean, I have Crohn's disease, so it relaxes me, and it helps me that way. So um, I went to the webpage, and it directed me to another webpage, Friends of Rick Simpson, I think it was called, and I wrote my story. I said, you know, number one, this is not about cancer. I need help. It's my grandbaby. Told him the story, and then immediately people just started reaching out. I'm sorry, I'm starting to get a little teared up because immediately people just wanted to help. They wanted to do anything they could to help, and they got me hooked up with somebody who got us some oil and decided, you know, hey, this is the best for her. Try her on this. We started it and immediately, immediately saw a change. She's in first grade this year. She hasn't been suspended, not once. Uh, Not hitting, not spitting, not biting. She's still very willful. She's still a little different. She probably always will be, but hell, who isn't? Who's perfect? Who's normal? We're all a little different. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. So you noticed a change in her right away as soon as she started taking the oil. To be honest, you know, they live in another state. I think I think my daughter said it was about a week, and she actually increased the dose a little bit. But the dose she was on, was it was really, really small. So she increased it, and then that's when she started to, to notice a difference. And she has not increased it since. And she um, was was told by the, the woman that we got it from, she gives it to her at night. You know, it's not like she's going to school and she's stoned. Chris, is she, is she on fire kitty or is she on a high THC oil or a one-to-one? Do you know? Um, I think it's one-to-one and it's called fire kitty. Okay, so that is actually a tincture. 
and um, it's got a mixture. It's got calendula, um, ooh, frankincense, uh, cannabis, mm-hmm. and a couple of things in it. And it's been very, very successful uh, with children with autism. And and I, you know, guys, I really think that this is very, very close to autism. Well, when you mentioned the uh, sensory processing disorder, we interviewed a woman uh, quite a few weeks back who had a child who uh, had uh, autism, and he had the sensory uh, processing disorder as well. And it's, she seemed to think that it all went kind of hand in hand with autism. Yeah, and the cannabis worked extremely well for him. Yeah, and he was on the same product, incidentally. Kids nowadays, they have so many issues. I mean, there's so many health issues. All of the junk that they put in food, I truly, truly believe that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, you could be right. Yeah, it's, well, it's great that she's, uh, she's almost starting to return to normal. I'm sure, uh, well, as normal as one can be in today's society. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, how does your daughter feel about it? She, you know, she's cool with it. She found out in her teenage years that, you know, me and her father did marijuana. So, but she, and she was never really into it, never really into it as a teenager, even as a young adult. But actually, you know, since this has been going on, she's kind of gotten into it. It's calmed her down. It's helped her. No, she has no problems at all with, with Andy taking this. She knows it's not hurting her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is not hurting her at all. It's helping her. It's calming her down. I believe your daughter had to at one point quit work, didn't she? Well, she did because um, Andy's in a special school, and it's only from nine to three. And she never knew when she was going to get a call. You know, yeah. she suspended. She bit her teacher. We tried restraining her. She had a fit, and you, you need to come and get her. Wow. It must have been terribly stressful for her. And I maybe think that's maybe why she started smoking pot, just to calm down. And it's helped her, too. And I, honestly, I mean, she kind of was a little quirky when, when she was little, my daughter. I think maybe she might have some issues. We're but. all a little quirky. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's got to be such a, a sense of relief for her not to have this continual worry about what's going to go on with her daughter in the daytime. No, no, she doesn't now. Um, she actually is looking for a job. She was actually working for her boyfriend's mother. She uh, flipped houses, I believe you call it. Mm-hmm. So she was um, helping helping with that. But, yeah, she'd like to get back to work. and But I think she's going to be able to do it because, like I said, all year, no suspensions, no biting, no hitting. She's still... Some, I mean, she's still stubborn. She still has her ways, but nothing like nothing like before the oil. Nothing. Chris, does Andy have friends that she plays with? It's school she does because she's in a regular class now. Mm-hmm. You know, she's restricted to lunch and uh, recess. But um, it's it's. I mean, she never went to like preschool, so she doesn't have any friends that way. I mean, she has friends of her parents' friends. Their kids. Yeah. Yeah. She has friends. And plus, she has a four and a half year old sister. Is your sister fine? Yeah. She, um, she's different from Andy. She doesn't have the speech problem, but she also has a different father. Okay. 
So we're thinking maybe that's why she doesn't have the speech issues that Andy does because it's a different father. Yeah, it could be genetic. You, ex- right? And that's what we thought, you know, the speech was genetic. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to uh, to talk to people about uh, their kids today and uh, some of their behavioral issues. And I guess, Corey, when we've talked to others about kids the use of cannabis oil just seems to make a fantastic difference. Yeah, and very, very rapidly and a very marked difference. Yeah. And uh, my second granddaughter, by the way, because of the fiasco with the failed induction at the hospital, my daughter decided to go all natural. She had a midwife and she had my second granddaughter at home. Nothing. No drugs. Nothing. Except for marijuana. That could have something to do with it as well. Chris, let me ask you, for those people in the United States who live in a state where cannabis is illegal, both medicinal cannabis and recreational cannabis, how difficult is it to obtain cannabis? Cannabis, it's, it's, it's not... And I'm not an expert on this, so I always use the word marijuana. I mean, my husband and I, like I said, for years, I didn't know how to do the oil. And my girlfriend's like, oh, you get enough, you know, you can, they'll teach you how to make it. I just wanted to get the oil. But God bless me. I'm a Christian. I prayed to God. And he just, he hooked me up with the right people through the website, and I was able to buy oil. I don't even have to buy marijuana and make it. Mm-hmm. So I, I was blessed, and I would help anybody I could. Now, the state that you live in, is there an opportunity coming up in the next year or two where there could be a vote on legalization of marijuana? Some of the people down in the the capital are are trying, but I mean, there's states around us, very much around us that, you know, if if we went to a doctor in those states, we could probably get medical. Chris, uh, it was good of you to talk to us. Anything you want to uh, say in conclusion? No, I just, I, I really thank God that, you know, my girlfriend reached out and told me about Rick Simpson and I did a little bit of research, and the people on Friends of Rick Simpson website, they just, they were phenomenal. They just wanted to help. And then from there, we just kind of branched off into private, you know, messages, and they got me hooked up. They, you know, but they got to trust you. They got to know, you know, this person, they're on the up and up. Yeah, that's good to hear. Excellent. Well, let's hope uh, all the best for Andy in the future, and uh, and I know that uh, she means a lot to you, and it was very good of you to join us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian and, and Corey. I, I really appreciate this, and I, I hope it helps somebody out there. Thanks, Chris. We really do appreciate it. Now, let's switch gears in this last segment of the podcast. I want to play for you uh, a speech that was given in Australia. It was at the United Compassion Medical Cannabis Symposium in June of last year in Sydney, Australia. And the speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Hergenrather. He's from Northern California. He began his medical career as a general practitioner in 1976. 
And after over 25 years in emergency medicine, he began his medical practice in cannabis consultations and general medicine in 1999. Dr. Hergenrather provides cannabis recommendations to Californians with serious medical conditions and consultations worldwide by phone and online appointments. He's a founding member and president of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. I want to play for this, play you uh, this piece because he does a very good job of explaining the endocannabinoid system within our bodies, and it's a great educational tool for all of us. And I won't play it all because his speech is well over an hour and uh, 10 minutes, but I want to play this portion to you. It's about 15 minutes. Let's listen to Dr. Jeffrey Hergenrather. Cannabis is one of the most investigated therapeutically active substances in history, far exceeding probably all pharmaceutical agents. Many of the medicines that come to market are are approved after one or two studies done in-house by the pharmaceutical industry. And we're making a huge fuss over we don't have enough information about cannabis before we allow its use in something that's been here for thousands of years. It doesn't make sense. In a PubMed search looking at endocannabinoid and cannabis, in 1993, we see 12 citations for endocannabinoids. Today, in 2016, just a few weeks ago, there were over uh, 7,300 citations. A huge amount of research and papers in this subject. And on cannabis itself, 81 citations in 1993, and in 2016, over 15,000 citations on cannabis. So we have studied this over and over again. We know a lot about this plant. The, it's, our use of cannabis in medicine is really based upon this endocannabinoid system. And I know you've heard a lot about it, but I'll try to bring it to you in a, in a slightly different way to, to make it applicable for clinical medicine. It's, of of course, composed of of receptors like a lock and the ligands like the key. They fit into the receptor. There are also non-cannabinoid receptors that uh, accept these cannabinoids. And there are a variety of proteins that are involved in in the synthesis, transport, and metabolism of these molecules. Errors in these uh, genes making these proteins can result in clinical endocannabinoid deficiency syndromes. The endocannabinoid system, as you've heard, modulates nervous system and immune system function and provides homeostasis in nearly all creatures in the animal kingdom. In summary, it's it's spoken of as helping with eating, sleeping, relaxing, forgetting in a good way, and protecting. The endocannabinoid system modulates pain and neuroprotection, immunity, neuroplasticity, inflammation, cancer, emotional memory, and embryological development. The endocannabinoids are synthesized on demand as an adaptive response to a cellular stress, aimed at reestablishing the cellular homeostasis. They are rapidly metabolized, usually right there near the site of action. So when we look at the animal kingdom from hydra to humans, we see the endocannabinoid system. It's there, and it's working all the time, bringing about homeostasis in these animals. 
It's in the sea squirt and the fish and the mammals and so forth. If we radioactively label THC or other cannabinoids and put them into the body, these hot spots noted with red and orange and yellow are where the cannabinoids will attach. This is where your receptors are most rich in your system. These are the CB1s. The CB2s are more of the immune system side of the, system, of the endocannabinoid system, and they are circulating and in our organs. So you see over on the right side of the screen at 102 minutes, they're dappling the liver, the spleen, the gut and bone and lymphatics throughout the body, the tonsils and so forth. They're rich in our immune systems. So if we enumerate where they are, the CB1s on the right are in all of these tissues. The CB2s on the left are in all of these tissues. The monocytes, the macrophage, the B cells, T cells, liver, spleen, tonsils, and so forth. They're doing their role in these sites. Briefly, I know you haven't seen, I don't believe you've seen these slides today. There's just a few of them. This is a typical... A typical synapse in the nervous system and it helps us to understand really how this is working. From the top an action potential, nerve impulse comes down and when it gets to the tip of this uh, neuron, it releases glutamate, in this case one of the body's, um, in, uh, one of the body's uh, neurotransmitters and it's released across the cleft where it finds the, re the receptor on the opposite neuron which is the postsynaptic cell neuron. So as the calcium channels open, the neurotransmitter glutamate, which would be similar in serotonin and dopamine and acetylcholine and, and so forth, all of the neurotransmitters do this same thing. Now when they cross, they, they find the receptor. When the activity is large, the calcium channels open on the postsynaptic uh, receptor cell. And then in response to that, down in the lower right, the endocannabinoid is produced. It crosses in a retrograde fashion across the synapse to find the cannabinoid receptor. And there, when the cannabinoid receptor is activated, the production and release of glutamate is blocked. So it's the circuit breaker in our nervous system. It works to actually create tone in the nervous system. And I think you've heard a lot about that in, in the presentations this morning. If there's not enough activity, it can upregulate the activity by backing down. If the activity is too great and there's a re risk of excitotoxicity or d damage to the nervous system, the cannabinoids come out to block the nervous transmission and protect the cells. True on the inhibitory side, the GABA a neurotransmitter is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, and similarly, it blocks that as well. So in all cases, it's down-regulating the way the nervous system is working, in effect, protecting it. On the immune system side, it's not so simple to demonstrate what's going on, but I think it is, we know that it is intimately involved in immune function. Activation effectively down-regulates immune sensitivity and without really compromising the efficacy of the immune system. So we're not finding that using cannabis is associated with disease or infections. There are a couple papers that I think are particularly interesting in terms of our clinical effects, and that is one by the Nagarkatis down in South Carolina. They showed that when looking at the host versus graft reaction, that is transplants, 
if you put in THC, it has a role in down-regulating that host versus graft reaction. What I'm hearing from patients is that they are, who have had transplants, is that their doctors are pleased to see that they don't need to take so much of the immunomodulator drugs as they're using cannabis to provide some of that function. Another very interesting uh, research paper by Molina out of Mississippi showed that infecting macaque monkeys with the a comparable HIV virus, the simian immunodeficiency virus, some of these animals were then treated with THC. Again, just single molecule THC. And what she found is that the THC-treated monkeys, it had an amelioration of disease progression, attenuation of the viral load and tissue inflammation, significantly reducing the morbidity and mortality of the SIV-infected macaque monkeys. It's helping these animals to have the THC aboard. It protects them. So this is a brief list. Well, it's not a brief list. It's a long list, but it's not complete of some of the pharmacologic actions that we can expect from cannabinoids. I won't read them, but you know, just pan over them to recognize that there's a huge array of pharmacologic actions that we can expect from cannabinoids. You know, as years have gone by, we've gone from saying, oh, cannabis, you know, it helps with everything, sarcastically, to realize, yeah, it pretty much helps with everything. Let's look at the cannabinoid receptor for a minute. On the right, we see a string of amino acids, each dot being an amino acid, in what is the CB1 or the CB2 receptor. The CB1 is a longer chain. It's the one rooted in the, immune, or in the nervous system. The CB2, a little shorter chain, is the mobile one in the immune system. I think it's particularly interesting to note that research has shown that if you substitute just one amino acid in this chain of, what, 472 amino acids in the CB1 and 360 amino acids in the CB2, one amino acid alteration will provide an, a measurable difference in the function of this endocannabinoid system. It just doesn't work the same. Again, the molecule, after putting these strings of amino acids together, forms a, a, a socket that goes to the membrane of the cell where it sets up to receive the cannabinoids. The trafficking is complex, and I think you've gathered that from the talks already. There are multiple targets for multiple different endocannabinoids, and activation of the endocannabinoid receptors may result in different downstream actions depending on which receptor is activated by which endocannabinoid. So we have basically the CB1 and CB2 receptors that we're talking about, but there are others. The TRPV1 receptor or capsaicin receptor, the GPR55 receptors, the PPAR receptors, they can all also be activated by endocannabinoids. And two, there are voltage-gated ion channels and ligand-gated ion channels similarly affected by cannabinoids. So... Moving on to this, we have anandamide and 2-AG as the primary endocannabinoids, and they often work in sort of a push-pull relationship in the body. When one is high, the other is low, and that is reversed. Even in fertilization, once an ovum is fertilized, 2-AG uh, is quite high and anandamide is low, 
As the ovum goes down to the uterus, that relationship reverses, where anandamide is high and important for implantation, and 2-AG is low. So they work in concert together. There you go. That's Dr. Jeffrey Hergenrather. He's a medical doctor in California, and he does worldwide consultations on uh, on cannabis. If you'd like to get in touch with him, you can check out his website, Jeffrey Hergenrather, last name spelled H-E-R-G-E-N-R-A-T-H-E-R. And it was a little technical, but I think it gives you an idea of the importance of cannabis in our system. And we have an endocannabinoid system within our body that uh, needs the elements that are in the cannabis plant. And there you have it. That's another edition of Cannabis Health Radio, wherever you are in the world. Thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.